0: Hey, it's Trashy Divorces time. It is that time again. I'm Alicia, friends. I'm Stacy. Welcome back. Or welcome. Thanks for joining us this week for another episode of Trashy Divorces. Who do you have this week, Alicia? Oh, very young. We're using <laughs> the Cat Stevens song, Civil Shepherd. Brassy, ballsy, outspoken, upfront, hell of a tale. Should Two Trashy Divorces, but also a Trashy Two Trashy Divorces and a Trashy Affair and... Just, she's a firecracker. Firecracker gold standard of trash. And this week, Stacy, you're bringing us the tale of... I have uh, Mandy
1: Moore's six-year marriage to Ryan Adams and what happened
0: and what happened after. Yeah. Two good tales this week. Before we kick off on our episode... I have this big, bright, shiny magic mirror that we don't yeah. want to give some thank yous to. We do. Whose name do we see in the magic mirror who joined us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces this week? Thank you to Aaron M, Abigail B,
1: Erin A, Tana C, Vicky A, Betsy F, and Amy
0: R. Wendy R, Sarah P, Megan B, Jennifer P, Courtney, and Rena. Thank you. Thank you. We have two new Trashy Super supporters as well, Anna and Sarah. And a apology and a very happy, happy belated birthday to one of our very best trash pandas, Laura R. Lulu, I missed you in our Trashy Tidbit shout out this week. Please forgive me. I hope you had a fantastic birthday earlier this week. I also have another shout out to give to Katie B and her Doctors Without Borders team who are rolling through Trashy Divorces episodes right now on the other side of the world doing good work. Doing great work. Big trashy love to you, Katie B and Doctors Without Borders and Lulu and all of our patrons and you, Sunday listener. Thanks for coming on back for another trashy episode. And with that, I think it's time to go, go, go.
1: All right, Alicia, I understand that you
0: have the person who brought the world, Bruce Willis. Is that correct? Perhaps, yeah. Sybil Shepherd was very hmm. instrumental in getting Bruce Willis cast for that role in Moonlighting. That was a moonlighting deep cut, yeah. <laughs> I've got a little bit about it. We're probably gonna talk about it more. Sybil Shepherd, you and I talked about this a little bit earlier this week. Like before Moonlighting, we didn't know Sybil Shepherd had a whole lifetime of a career behind her. And, you know. Well, also because we were quite young when Moonlighting came. Right. Out. Yeah. But <laughs> Beautiful face, whole career. It's a hell of a story. Probably better known for her not trashy divorce and her long term affair with Peter Bogdanovich more than the trashy divorces that she had. Let's just talk about it. Sybil Lynn, Lynn with an E. You know she's from the South, right? Born <laughs> in Memphis, Tennessee. Sybil Lynn. Huh. Sybil Lynn Shepherd. Born February 18th, 1950, she is named for both her grandfather, Cy, and her father, Bill. Hence, Sybil. Dad runs an appliance store. Mom's a homemaker. Sybil has a brother and a sister, but all of the relationships in the family are complicated. This is a family that appears perfect from the outside, but within the walls of the actual home, it is a volatile atmosphere. There's some emotional stunting happening. Mom and dad fight a lot. By the time Sybil's 15, dad has moved out. Her parents will finalize their divorce when she's about 18. Sybil's mom, recognizing that she has a beautiful daughter and also super into the presentation of things. Mom is really big at presenting and styling Sybil into being perfect, into being beautiful, into being... Something otherworldly that other girls don't get. But the one thing that mom doesn't talk about is sex. It's off limits. And the only thing that Sybil will ever learn about sex from mom is that it is unpleasant and shameful and should be avoided at all costs. I feel like we're learning things about Sybil's father here. Well, when dad moves out, when Sybil's 15, Sybil is going to flip to the rebellious side and She will choose to rebel as much as she is able with sex. Mm -hmm. There are boys that the parents never approve of, will never approve of. They're sneaking out of the home. There's rebellious teen trouble. Mm -hmm. At 16, Sybil is going to win Miss Teenage Memphis. This is 1966. Winning this pageant will allow Sybil to compete in Miss Teenage America, which she doesn't win, but she will walk away with the award for Miss Congeniality. So that's a real thing. (laughs) It's a real thing. In 1968, the young beauty wins a contest for model of the year, which provides a modeling contract as one of the prizes. So Sybil at 18 leaves Memphis, Tennessee, heads to New York city, moves into the Barbizon hotel to begin her modeling career. She talks about this later, like at 18, I was ill-equipped to do this. I did not know how to balance a checkbook. I didn't go to college. I didn't have that same sort of growth experience as my other peers. Thoroughly unequipped to make this happen. But when you talk about making it happen, like the word success is a mild word choice when we talk about her modeling career. In 1969 alone, that year, Sybil Shepard is the face of eight of the 12 Glamour magazine covers Hmm. for that year. Yeah. Enormous. So Sybil's modeling and doing commercials, but the thing is Sybil hates it. She finds the work degrading. I'm a clothes hanger. She's talked to in a condescending manner by photographers and executives. She's treated as if, like, she is stupid. She is a clothes hanger. And as much as Sibling may not have enjoyed the modeling, whoa, it propels her and her face into a position where she gets noticed a lot. One of those people that notice her is a woman named Polly Platt. Polly is married to a director named Peter Bogdanovich, who is making a movie called The Last Picture Show. Polly Platt sees Sibyl on one of these covers Brings the magazine home to Peter. Peter sees her in a t-shirt that says, I love you, I love you, I love you. and Peter will say, that is not what her look was saying. <laughs> and Polly's like, she'd be perfect for JC, who is this femme fatale, teenage girl, sin on toes character that the last picture show has. Now, when I say Peter's making a movie, I'm doing air quotes around that. Because I'd like you to know that Polly's making the movie for Peter. She has chosen the project. She has sold the project. She has picked the sets. She has picked the location. She has done the costumes. Polly's uncredited for all of this. But I need you to know that Polly Blatt is the driving force behind the last picture show being made. Seems fair. So backing up a little bit. By the end of the 1960s, Peter and Polly are a force together within movies, but the marriage is not on great terms. They've been married about six years at this point, and there's a lot of dissatisfaction in the personal relationship with Peter and Polly. Her identity is very much into what they make together, how she can help him and them and her, but not so much into the love part. They should be riding high. They have a young child. Polly is pregnant again. They're about to head out to make this film together with a 20-year-old ingenue who's much more interested in betting her co-star Jeff Bridges than she is in Peter. So Peter and Polly go to location, leave the kids with Peter's mother, Polly's mother-in-law, and there's one weekend. Jeff Bridges is away from the set and somehow the thing with Sybil and Peter begins. The set is described by Sybil as sexually charged. So it's obvious that Sybil and Peter had become lovers. Polly knows it when Peter comes back to their hotel room and says, I got these pecan patties for Sybil. They're her favorite. That's when it hits her. Like she knows. hmm. Oh, hell. Right. It's happening. So Polly knows that they're sleeping together. The whole set knows they're sleeping together. So this makes things awkward for the other cast and crew. Because, right, they have two, Polly and Peter have two young kids. And his wife is his professional wife is the driving force behind the project. And Polly, for her part, is like, oh, my God, I've just delivered a child. I'm still bleeding. I cannot compete with this 20-year-old mm-hmm. sin yeah. on toes. And also, this is my project, too. Right. I've picked every costume. The oh God. Polly does Sybil's makeup every day.
1: Oh God. She
0: still has to make her look beautiful. Mm-hmm. This is her, this is her career. Right. Can you imagine being caught in? That kind of, like, this is not the trashy divorces of Peter Bogdanovich, even though that's probably coming. It's a tremendous story. I want to keep it focused on Sybil. But the trashiest divorce in this one? Yo, Polly Platt, man. Yeah, that's rough. Oh, and just her struggle. She's a professional woman. This film can launch me and my 31-year-old husband, by the way. Peter's 11 years older than Sybil. And... Now the father of my two kids is, oh God. So for her part, Sybil Shepard says her attraction to Peter was not just physical or superficial. The couple had a much deeper connection. Sybil says that Peter was the first man who ever treated me as an equal intellectually. If you think of a person as a circle, I had a huge wedge of myself that was empty, which was confidence. And he helped me fill that. And then he helped me get to a point where I could do things to fill myself up. That's actually high praise. I mean, that, that, that's sort of all yeah. you can
1: hope for in um, a romantic partner, honestly. <laughs>
0: well, there's an interview with Barbara Walters that Sybil does. And Barbara Walters asks her, it said that he was your Svengali. And Sybil's like, no, nah, if I remember correctly, Svengali creates a woman out of nothing. And that was not me. I can say Peter was my teacher. And she, you know, Barbara asked, do you love him? She's like, yeah, I love him. I'll always love him. So they, Sybil and Peter, do have this connection, although it will cause the divorce of Polly and peter Mm -hmm. but polly going in you know she's doing sybil's makeup every day making sure she's costume polly thinks like once the movie's done every director falls for their leading lady and once this is done it'll be over no one knows that you know at least of all polly that this is really going to be the demise of the relationship so in later interviews sybil freely admits that at the time and now think about that 18 year old girl we talked to i was Mm ill-equipped like if Peter Bogdanovich is your teacher in that way because you've never had that. I get how that would be very powerful. But Sybil at that time says she didn't care that she was breaking up a family. She wanted to be with Peter. And that was the thing that was important to her. Upon retrospect, Sybil says she is not proud of that. Oh, yeah. No, does not get involved with married men any longer. Yeah. 20 year old brain is not. Where it needs to be. By the middle end of the shooting, Peter and Sybil had moved in to a different motel room. Once the movie's over, Peter's going to move out of his home with Polly Platt and their two kids into a Bel Air estate with Sybil. That estate was once owned by Clark and Kay Gable, just as a spiderweb. Last Picture Show is released. It's a hit when it's released in 1971. Nominated for several Academy Awards and Golden Globes. Sybil Shepard is nominated for Golden Globe for Best Actress. So, Riding High should be a great success. Peter and Sybil in love, happy together. They said they never expected that relationship to be monogamous. Nor were they interested in getting married. So, Peter says the rules were they couldn't cheat on each other when they were in the same city. Other than that fair game. Have a good time. How's that work? Well, hold on. Uh, <laughs> Sybil will appear in the heartbreak kid in 1972 with Charles Grodin. They have an affair during the movie shoot, <laughs> Charles Grodin and Sybil Shepherd. Right. Uh, good performance. There's also a little affair with Elvis Presley. think you'll enjoy this. Sybil is contacted by a friend of hers who is also friends with Elvis. And the friend is like, Sybil, Elvis really wants to meet you. Like, both Memphis people, right? Mm-hmm. So Sybil goes the next time she's in Tennessee. She goes and meets Elvis to see a movie, and the two begin an affair. So Sybil will write a book called Sybil Disobedience, in which she, she's very honest, and I've got a good quote about it in a little bit. But this is where we get all this dishy dishy stuff is from Sybil herself. Oh Lord, okay, children don't you should, children should not be listening to this show, but. I'm saying for this part for the next 20 seconds. Right. No kids.
1: No, I think I know where this is going because all this sort of notoriously had a lot of sexual
0: hangups. Okay. Well, not after Sybil Shepherd, Hold up. So uh, they begin an affair. And in her book, Civil Disobedience, Sybil will describe her first sexual encounter with Elvis. She said that he was kissing her all over her body, but he stops at her belly button. She says, what's wrong? And Elvis says... White boys don't eat, fill in the blank. And she asked him if he would like her to show him. And Elvis hence changes his policy on that particular sexual hangup. Of her relationship with Elvis. Sybil says that he was brilliant and funny and warm hearted. And the relationship may have worked if it were not for his drug abuse. She describes him as tremendously sexy, a wonderful lover, but Sybil refuses to be controlled by Elvis. So he one time sends one of his guys to pick her up. And the guy's like, Elvis likes his ladies to dress in a certain way. So he'd like to take you shopping. And Sybil's like, (laughs) I don't think so. Sequined jumpsuits don't look good on me. (laughs) (laughs) During a weekend in Las Vegas, Sybil really loses a lot of her fondness, esteem for Elvis when she actually realizes how much he is relying on drugs and alcohol. She recalls, quote, the Swedish charm I had seen in Memphis seemed to be draining away, replaced by unfortunate brat boy humor. He was chubby and wore more makeup than I did. Unquote. They get back to their hotel room after a performance. He's drugged up on pills, collapses on the bed, Sybil will describe him as woozy, seeming far away with slurred speech, and he holds out to Sybil a handful of pills and says, here, take these. Eventually, Elvis will present her with a ring and to, uh, tell Sybil Shepard, you have to choose between me and Peter. <laughs> he says, you got to get rid of this Bogdanovich guy. <laughs> Sybil
1: chose Peter. Yeah, because the, yeah,
0: the drug-addicted (laughs) man-child. Sybil (laughs) will later say she feels terrible when she learns of Elvis's death. I don't know whether he was heartbroken or not when I left, and that bothers me. I did have the feeling he needed someone to rescue him, though. I don't think his kind of fame is survivable. That's pretty apt. Sybil and Peter's career kind of hit a rough patch in between 73-75 because they're the couple that America loves to hate. What? You left your wife and your two and kids your babies, and yeah. now you're just shacking up with this blonde ingenue yeah. that's a... Okay. Gorgeous model actress, yeah. Well, and both Peter and Sybil will admit that their behavior during that time was obnoxious and arrogant. They did flaunt their relationship. They acted superior. They were always in the spotlight. Fun fact, Peter and Sybil are the first unmarried couple on the cover of People magazine that ever happened. Hmm. I know. In that article, they talked about how much sexier it was to live together than to be married, which in the early 70s is... Quite shocking to people at the time Quite. to read in just your grocery store publication.
1: Quite an opinion for middle America.
0: <laughs> Not only does America love to hate this couple, Hollywood is taking great pleasure in the downfall of their careers. So, Sybil Shepherd is in Taxi Driver in 1976. She gets good reviews, but her public image is done. She's all but blacklisted in Hollywood And was told by more than one agent that she'd never work in the movies again. Wow. Mm -hmm. Sybil says her relationship does finally end with Peter after several happy years together. Because Sybil gets baby fever. And Peter decides he does not want to have another kid. So the two split. She goes back home to Memphis and makes her cabaret debut. Found this interesting. So Sybil had been singing and taking voice lessons since she was about 16. But... Singing in front of a live audience terrified her. She's like Carly Simon in that way. I can sing like a bird, but put me in front of people. Sybil had to go to therapy to overcome her fear of singing. Okay. After the fallout with Peter, she's devastated. Sybil will go through a series of unhealthy affairs and one night stands. On one of those, she will become pregnant. And as much as she wanted to have a child with Peter, In this case, she did choose to have an abortion, which puts her at just an emotional low, right? That she feels lost, again, back in Memphis. When she goes back to Memphis, she will meet an auto parts dealer named David Ford. And the two fall in love. Sybil becomes pregnant. The two are married in London in November 1978. Sybil, for everything she's been through, this is her going... This is her committing. I promise to be faithful. I will stop lying about sex and about cheating. This is the real deal thing. I'm committing myself to this marriage. Their daughter is born in June of 1979. Couple decides to raise their family in Memphis. They start a band together. They travel around. They perform in nightclubs and jazz bars. They do dinner theater, cabaret. The regular Sonny and Cher over there. I mean, that's (laughs) when you've been blacklisted by Hollywood. Let me get married. Let me have a baby. Let me make some, like, let me Mm -hmm. do what I love to do. Different kind of showbiz. This cabaret thing, right? Gets Sybil into singing and using some of her comedy skills, which are going to come in pretty handy in no time at all. The couple will divorce in 1982. Hmm. You ready for the... Shittiest part about this. Tell me. David admits to having an affair. It's not Sybil that does. Right. It's not Sybil that lies or cheats or does anything out of bounds here. It's David. And Sybil is just like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm 30. I'm out of work. I'm a single mom. And you're the one who fucked around on me. God. After her divorce, Sybil does keep performing in nightclubs and has some parts in TV movies. She does fulfill her sexual curiosity of a threesome. She does this with two stuntmen. Oh, there's an affair. Well, I'm not going to say affair. Uh, with Don Johnson on the... This is just a mm-hmm. trashy divorces spiderweb alum. Memory lane, Reunion yeah. orgy of <laughs> well, some guy. Don Johnson was some kind of sex god, right? Oh, yeah. So they're on the Long Hot Summer film together. And so there's some intense... Onset flirting, and the two have an encounter. Sybil writes of this, It was like wolfing down a candy bar when you're starving. Fast, furious, intense. And it was all over in five minutes. Somehow we never got around to another five minutes. Interesting. All right. Let's talk about moonlighting for just a minute, because in 1984, Sybil gets a call from director Glenn gordon Caron: I've got a script for you.
1: I don't think I realized that Moonlighting kind of represented a comeback for her. Oh,
0: so much of a comeback, which was why her model turned detective show. Like it's kind of, uh, Carol Lombard is one of her idols and she has always wanted to do comedy. Sybil has. And she gets the script for Moonlighting and it reminds her of all those classic screwball comedies that she had studied all those years ago with Peter Bogdanovich, right? She refers to Moonlighting as a Hoxian comedy, Howard Hawks, and Sybil agrees to do Moonlighting, as long as she has casting approval for her co-star. Now, the script will describe David Addison, Bruce Willis's character, as emotionally adolescent, cocky and sexually aggressive, whose humor and charm ameliorate his behavior and language. She needs there to be chemistry. There was. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Apparently, it had been a long day of seeing candidates in the conference room. And so this unknown bartender with a receding hairline walks in in an army fatigue jacket, several earrings. And Sybil says there was a careless, desultory way he walked around Mm -hmm. the big table. His eyes were crinkled and his lips pressed into a mocking smile, a composite of what it was was to become the signature David Addison smirk. His name was Bruce Willis. As soon as he left, Sybil leans over to Glencairn and says, he's (laughs) the one. That's the guy. And the network brass doesn't want to cast him. Okay, okay, we'll do a screen test. And just before they're about to do the scene, the camera's rolling, Bruce will look at Sybil with what she called a perfect satisfaction and said, I can't concentrate, you're too beautiful abc's done he's cast uh uh-huh. So, uh-huh that show does last it's tumultuous we'll talk i mean again not part of the trashy divorces the next marriage for sybil happens during the course of moonlighting she begins a romance with hollywood chiropractor bruce oppenheim she had been seeing him to deal with her migraine headaches sybil becomes pregnant with twins at the age of 37 Sybil and Bruce marry March 1st, 1987. This is in the height of Moonlighting, y'all. There's a lot going on, a lot of kids, a lot of work. Fourth season of Moonlighting, those twins are born, and then the marriage kind of done. They split in February 1989. Two years over and out. They have Hmm. an ugly and contentious divorce. Oppenheim will go on to marry Three's Company actress, Jenny Lee Harrison, in 1993, (laughs) and they are still... Happily married, congrats, <laughs> <laughs> so a number of years later, this ex husband will try to stop her publication of that book, Civil Disobedience. He threatens legal action if she writes about him or the twins, and he tells American magazine, "I don't want my kids teased because other children are talking about their mother's raunchy sex life. It's too disgusting. Oppenheim's <laughs> attempt to block the book's publication will fail. Sybil Disobedience was published in April of 2000. And she does talk about her raunchy sex life. Clearly. Mm-hmm. In a review in the New York Daily News, they said, nobody kisses and tells like Sybil Shepard. Sounds about right, to be honest. Sybil will say, people ask me how I feel about my children reading about my sex life in my book. The fact is, they've always been reading about my sex life in the tabloids. She says she's deeply proud of her book. It does become a bestseller. Makes for more than a million bucks. She'll continue, there isn't a word there that I didn't weigh and try to be more honest and truthful. I believe that book revived my reputation to a certain extent. I was hardest on myself. Hmm. Moonlighting doesn't. Sybil says she's proud of having discovered Bruce Willis and the success that came after his role for him on the show. There are a few more movies, chances are, with Ryan O'Neill and Robert Downey Jr. Oh, my favorite Mary Stuart Masterson. <laughs> she reprises her role of JC in Texasville. I mean, there's other things. What else is happening? She does Sybil. We'll follow up more on this with Trashy Tidbits, because there's a thing with less moon V's and the sabotage of the show and all that stuff, but that's kind of the end of Sybil's trashy divorces. Good Lord. I'll kind of dig her. She's long been an outspoken supporter of abortion rights. And long before it was popular to do so, Sybil's been an advocate for LGBTQ, the community and marriage equality. She considers herself a proud radical feminist Sex education is essential and sex should be openly discussed instead of kept secret and shameful like she was raised. She was raised. Mm -hmm. After writing her biography, she was interviewed on the Larry King show and he asked her why she did speak so openly about her sex life. And she replied in part, sexual pleasure is a radical political concept women's sexual pleasure particularly. And that's why it was so important for me to be honest and talk about it in my book. So I could talk about how I became a radical feminist and became politicized. Here's the thing you don't know. Sybil's older sister, Terry, was a lesbian. So Sybil, her whole life is very affected by how her sister had to hide her own sexuality because it is not accepted to be gay in the South in the 60s or 70s, 80s. And I mean, it's not safe. It's not accepted. It's not safe. It's it's dangerous. Sybil has been honored by GLAAD with the Golden Gate Award in 2010, as well as the Trevor Project Champion Award in 2019. It's a lovely little tie on here. 2019 is also a special year for Sybil because Sybil's TV writer daughter, Ariel, will marry her fashion designer partner, Eliza, at a beautiful wedding ceremony in California. And Sybil is a very proud mother of the bride. Lovely. I love it. It was really a very pretty wedding. It was very well done. The pictures were nice. (laughs) So Sybil has had long-term relationships and engagements, but not married. She says her reduced libido that comes with menopause is a blessing to her. Mm Because it has given her more control now that her sexual drive is not so strong, causing her to make bad decisions. <laughs> Which is what our podcast is about. Sybil turned 71 in February. Well, wow. Still going strong, loving her role as a mom and a grandmother, and feeling fulfilled in this role as advocate for causes that she feels strongly about, and enjoying her continued career Brassy and honest and brave and evolved. Civil Shepherd. All right. That was a journey.
1: That was a real journey. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to hear of Elvis finding um, legally age-appropriate partners? partners. Yeah, you know. He did have a thing for very young people.
0: Yeah, apparently they were age-appropriate yeah. at the time. Nice, nice. But yeah, Sybil C- Shepherd just sort of unabashed and...
1: All out in the open.
0: Tells it like it is.
1: Birth and Bruce Willis.
0: I think we could use more of that in women. Yeah. Let's just talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's not make anything shameful or sinful because that's that's where all the hangups come from. Anyway.
1: <laughs> I think you twice described her as sin on toes in the story, <laughs>
0: And she got to a point, and I think that's what she said about Moonlighting, was I was so tired of being sex goddess. Like, I wanted to do comedy. I wanted to do something very different than just the face that I was known for. And that, again, that Oprah interview was really interesting because Sybil's like, I didn't have anything to do with my beauty. I was made this, like, my parents were good looking people. I, I am not in control of this. And it got me... So far in life, but not because of anything to do with my own merit. Right, right. So it seems like I don't know. She was a fascinating character to learn mm-hmm. about. As, I can see why she chafed at the modeling career yeah, as well. Like, like a, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. That's not who I am. It's how I look, and it's quite a division there. Yeah. As trash cans go, I don't even have them written. I don't know. They're all filled with seasons of television shows that should have gone on moonlight probably more (laughs) awards but really like a life well done Mm -hmm. good on you cool halos maybe i'm i'm sort of at a loss because she's so trashy but so awesome hell on heels man i love it that that's fine (laughs) we don't have to quantify all of them i can't i just can't on her it's a fascinating story, Sybil Shepherd. Let's take a quick break, okay? And come back with the the other half. I like it of this trashy episode. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal, and I'm Kurt Sutter, and welcome to our new podcast called Pie People, Influences, and Experiences.
1: Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know ya at a deeper level—the who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their
0: marriages if they're married. So, Stacy, you're bringing us the divorce saga today of the newly liberated Queen of Nice.
1: <laughs> yes, I guess not newly liberated, but certainly um, somebody who washed her hands of it and got right back into things. So, this is a, this is a decidedly UG situation because things took a turn after their divorce. But this is singer and actress Mandy Moore, widely considered to be a all caps genuinely nice person. <laughs>
0: That's what like, I hear. That's what
1: everyone says. Mm-hmm. Like, no one says mean things about her except her ex-husband. Miss Congeniality. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, Mandy Moore got herself enthralled to a bad boy rock star. Mm. She was at a vulnerable moment in her life, and Ryan Adams, who is 10 years her senior and apparently is on the controlling slash possessive side, according to numerous accounts, including hers, he saw an opening when he met the pop princess. It went poorly and eventually there was an enormous scandal. So this is sort of the antithesis of
0: Peter Bogdanovich. Very
1: much so. I mean that really caught me what Sybil Shepherd was saying about him, that he like filled her up and mm-hmm. gave her the opportunity to find confidence. This is not that story. Everyone that has spoken about Ryan Adams' treatment of them has said no, he he shrinks you, he limits you, he controls you, he yeah. Oh, very young.
0: Tell me the story.
1: Okay. So let me get into a little bio of each just to set the stage. If you're not familiar with these star-crossed stars, David Ryan Adams came into the world on November 5th, 1974. He's a Scorpio. Fellow musician and Ryan Adams' ex, Phoebe Bridgers, whose intersection with the story we will get to shortly, told NME that Ryan told her that he's a triple scorpio and <laughs> oh, that explains so that, much yeah if true that wow. i mean maybe i can just end the story there i
0: don't know
1: ryan adams we'll triple see scorpio you next
0: week on another episode of trashy Divorces. have a great
1: week um <laughs> yeah bridger says she doesn't know if it's true but quote he told me this himself okay so ryan is a middle child And when he was just five years old, his dad abandoned the family, which left them homeless. So that's terrible. Yeah, they moved in with his grandparents, and he credits his grandparents with the bulk of his raising and particularly introducing him to books and to writing. So as a kid, he was a nerdy introvert. He loved Edgar Allan Poe, wrote short stories on his grandmother's typewriter. As a teen, he got into more challenging work. Henry Miller, Jack Kerouac. At 14, he was gifted an electric guitar, and at 16, he dropped out of school, moved in... (laughs) Moved in with a musician buddy and played widely in the local scene. Uh, they're in uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina. So their band was the Patty Duke Syndrome. I just loved that. I oh, my. <laughs> in 1994, he had left Jacksonville and gotten to Raleigh. He formed Whiskey Town. This is an alt-country act. It got big traction, but it was ultimately hamstrung by Ryan Adams' need for constant drama. The Detroit Free Press described the band as, quote, half-band, half-soap opera. Oh. Uh, (laughs) This band would last until 2000. Some fun stuff about it. Whiskeytown's old tour manager wrote a book in 2018 called Waiting to Derail and had some interesting stories to share in doing publicity for the book. He told Charlotte's News and Observer... That Ryan, quote, loves a nemesis, a battle of foe. He is kind of powered and fueled by drama, and in absence of naturally occurring drama, he's able to create it. The entire soap opera aspect of Whiskey Town had nothing to do with his alcohol or drug intake. Ryan Adams is absolutely one of the smartest people I've met in my entire life, and he knows you get more press by fighting. He knows there's more press when you fire the entire band on stage four days before the tour is over. Even at a young age, he was very self-aware and calculated, and it was part of his genius.
0: Genius or assholery? <laughs>
1: yes. Sorry. But by the time the band split, yeah, right? Let's just say he's a conflict-intensive person. So by the time the band split, there were something like 20 ex-members of Whiskey Town oh floating on this around.
0: episode of Whiskey
1: Town. <laughs> <laughs> he would just routinely fire people. It was just a revolving door of drama oh and like the news and observer interviewers, like why did musicians keep agreeing to work with him I and, no idea and the guy's like well when he's when he's good he's great uh. like he's when he's like in a good mood he's the best guy in the world <laughs> okay so by the time the band broke up he was living the dream in new york city but in the aftermath of its demise his girlfriend um, her name was amy and she would get a song on his breakthrough album. <laughs> left him too. He told the guardian in 2011, "Quote, she's gone, the cats were gone, my attorney comes to the apartment with 300 bucks left from my contract and says you can't live here anymore, you have to go back to North Carolina." My buddy picked me up and I saw the city behind me getting smaller and it was like my dream was over. Mm. His dream was not, not over. over. That year he released his breakthrough album Heartbreaker that included appearances from Emily Harris, Gillian Welch, David Rawlings, and more. Pitchfork called it, quote, an album of astonishing musical proficiency, complete honesty, and severe beauty. Mm. Its follow-up, Gold, was a big success. But in subsequent years, like through the 2000s, Ryan Adams kind of developed a reputation for hard partying, yes, but also as a prolific and rebellious creator who refused to deliver a radio-friendly album to his label. This would cause more conflict. (laughs) You will be stunned to learn. Okay. So he cleans up from what sounds like a really extensive drug and alcohol odyssey in 2007, prompting the New York Times to run an interview that it titled Ryan Adams Didn't Die. That's That's the headline? Wow. Yeah. Now the work begins was the rest of the headline. So he detailed the past few years of his life there. Without exaggerating, this is a quote, without exaggerating, it is a miracle I did not die. I snorted heroin a lot Mm. with Coke. I did speedballs every day for years and took pills and then drank. And I don't mean a little bit. I always outdid everybody. Mm. In theory, in 07, a newly sober and perhaps toned down Ryan Adams emerges. And we're just going to park him here in the late 2000s, older, debatably wiser, and we're going to turn our attention to his future ex-wife. Okay. The Queen of Nice. Amanda Lee Moore, Mandy Moore, was born April 10, 1984. She's an Aries in Nashua, New Hampshire. When she was a baby, the family relocated to a suburb of Orlando. Her dad is a pilot and he was based there. Mandy was a precocious kid who was desperately interested in singing and acting, inspired by her maternal grandmother, who was a professional ballerina. Oh, wow. So as a kid, she's her parents get her acting and singing lessons. She's performing around Orlando before she was 10, like singing the national anthem at sports games and I think doing like little local theater commercial awesome. shoots. Yeah. At 12, she attended the Stage Door Manor Performing Arts Camp, whose alums include Zach Braff, Michael Ian Black, Natalie Portman, John Cryer, Jennifer Jason Lee, Robert Downey Jr., Marissa Tomei. And an Oscar ceremony's worth of others. I mean,
0: holy cats.
1: It's a really, I, I was doing some reading on it. It's a really interesting, like, intense three week program. Like, they do three of them over the summer. They put on like 50 productions every summer. It's, wow. it's a really remarkable thing. The next year, 13 year old Mandy Moore was in a music studio in Orlando working on some of her songs, like you do. Like you do. When the FedEx guy dropped something off hears her singing and is like, hey, I know a guy at Epic Records. Can uh-uh. I Can I take your... Do you have something I can show him? Because you're great. And sure enough, at the age of 15 in 1999, wow, Mandy Moore was touring with InSync and the Backstreet Boys and had a hit song, Candy, 15 years 15. old. Movie roles followed, co-starring in The Princess Diaries with Anne Hathaway. Uh she starred in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation, which is like its own genre of film at this point. <laughs> a Walk to Remember. From there she was just everywhere and doing everything. There was more music, there were more movies, there were TV appearances, she was on Scrubs, she voiced a character on The Simpsons, like it it was it was the dream. Just living the dream. Fantastic. More importantly though, through all of this, she avoided the pitfalls that other stars were falling into. She was close with her family. She was a middle child. She had an older and a younger brother. Everybody just kept her really grounded, even through this weird blizzard of fame. How did she get hooked up with him? (sighs) I'll tell you. Okay, so on a family Christmas vacation when she was 23 years old, probably 07, I'm guessing, she put herself to work setting up a laptop for her mother and discovered a draft email that was addressed to her. And she was like, Why is my mom emailing me and why is it a draft? And anyway, so here is how Glamour magazine's Jessica Radloff uh, described the situation in a 2018 profile. When Moore was 23, her mother left her father after 30 years of marriage for a woman. Moore discovered the relationship by accident during a Christmas trip to North Carolina.
0: Oh my.
1: And a plot twist worthy of This Is Us. While setting up a laptop for her mom, she saw an email. Okay. So the email, Mandy Moore says, quote, it was basically her telling us how she had fallen in love with a friend and was going to leave dad. It was the family's last vacation together. Moore's reaction was to protect her father, but as time passed, and through plenty of therapy, she came to understand her mom's decision. Quote, at the time, I was left with no choice but to compartmentalize what was happening, she says. Now everyone is in a much better space, and they're with the people that are better suited for them. All of that is a very happy ending, but it didn't come without real struggle. Sure. I mean, I think it was a devastating blow to her at the time. I think it just completely knocked her world off its axis. It was a Catholic family, first of all, so I think divorce had not been a conceivable... Mom in love with her best friend leaving the husband after three days. De- yeah, yeah. It's
0: mm-hmm. complicated. Yeah, and
1: given the success that she had already achieved by this point in her life at the tender age of 23... It's hard to see how she might not have had certain expectations about, like, life is very easy. It's just a smooth sailing. I'm on a glide path. Everything's good. It's great. You know, if you show up, you work hard, and you're a good person, only good things are going to happen, right? That's entirely true. So (laughs) (laughs) um, I have a quote from her from an ABC article when she was 23 asked about what she would tell herself back when she was, you know, kicking everything off at the age of 15. If I could talk to myself at 15, I would say really take the time to appreciate everything that's happening because it all feels like such a blur to me at this point. I would say really surround yourself with good people that really are looking out for you, whether that's family or good friends, because I kind of feel like that's the key to everything. It keeps you sane, keeps you grounded, and keeps you happy. Good advice. It's great advice. Okay, so the contract relationship she thought she had with life was not the straightforward roadmap she'd envisioned. Months later, she met an intense and edgy Ryan Adams at a show in Minneapolis. And here was this creative genius, this undisciplined rock star, this often out-of-control man whose roadmap blew up when he was five, and who had survived over and over again the delicate operation of embedding landmines in his own life and then jumping on them. On Mark Maron's podcast, WTF, she said, "As a 23-year-old, impressionable woman, I was really taken by him. I had never I can fix him." <laughs> I had never met someone who had that lens on the world. The marriage, just a year later, like it, everything moved very, very fast wow. with them, was a way of steadying myself, she says, after her parents' divorce. She was 25 when they married. And then Mandy Moore, who had been so much of everywhere, was suddenly basically nowhere. nowhere. Yeah. She disappeared. So to Marin again, talking about how Ryan discouraged her from working, I would do little jobs. It's not like I completely stopped working. I would do things here or there, but it became abundantly clear while I was working, things would completely fall apart at home. I couldn't do my job because there was just a constant stream of trying to pay attention to this person who needed me and wouldn't let me do anything else.
0: Mm -mm -mm
1: -mm. Fun, fun, fun. The marriage would last six years, and in its aftermath... Mandy would recount a very relatable dynamic that I think a lot of people, and especially women, have found themselves in in relationships. She talks about how small she felt with Ryan, how cut off from herself she felt, and how isolated she became creatively. Like, he offered to help her with her new, like, make a new album after they were married. So they wrote a bunch of songs together, but every time it was time to go to the studio, he came up with a reason to cancel. So it just Mm -hmm. never, just never happened. I mean, it was released eventually, but it was long after the marriage ended. So according to Mandy, Ryan would go to some really dark places with his insults toward her. Mm. In uh, 2019, she told the New York Times, he would always tell me, you're not a real musician because you don't play an instrument. What? That's fun. That's fun. In 2016, she told people, I wasn't a participant in my own life for a while. I poured so much of myself into my personal life. And when that wasn't as fruitful as I hoped it would be, and I extricated myself from that situation, I was able to realize I wasn't honoring myself and my dreams and what I wanted in life. I'm having some feelings. You should. Um, also consider, I mean, she is a an actress and a singer who basically checked out of networking within her industries from the ages of- Because of her insecure husband. From the ages of 25 to 31, which yeah. is prime earning years for both of those fields. Like Crucial. Mm-hmm. Okay, in terms of trashy divorce details, I will let Nikki Swift's reporting tell the tale. Moore was struggling to reach an agreement with Adams about their eight pets. Oh my. Adams promised to take two of the cats, but ultimately left Moore to care for all of the animals on her own. She wanted the rocker to take half. Beyond that, Moore was requesting spousal support, but Adams refused to pay up. Court documents claimed he made $151,000 per month, which was more than four times Moore's monthly earnings. Adams ended up winning that one, and both parties held on to the publishing rights of their respective songs. According to TMZ, by the time the divorce was finalized, Moore got the Prius, their Griffith Park home, a Beverly Hills condo, $425,000 in cash. Adams got the 59 Cadillac, 2008 Porsche Carrera, multiple bank accounts, his comic book collection, and pinball machines. Well, as long as you got the important things, man. (laughs) To be clear... Ryan Adams has always and often disputed Mandy's characterization of their relationship, explaining that he just has a different view on how all of that was playing out like he's always it's important to get his statements on on that on the record here. so the twenty sixteen divorce was not an end as much as it was a harbinger of things to come. You see, Ryan Adams had also long taken an interest in the careers of up and coming female musicians. And according to a bombshell report in the New York Times in 2019, he would often dangle professional help to young women in the industry, only Mm -hmm. to turn around and make it weird by pursuing them sexually and then subjecting them to harassment and efforts to crush their careers if they rejected him. Don't make it weird. Don't make it weird. Don't make it weird. Again, to be clear, Ryan Adams and his attorney, Andrew B. Brettler, have unequivocally denied the allegations I'm about to share. And an FBI investigation into his communications with a minor was closed without Ryan being charged. He's since repeatedly issued public apologies, kind of vaguely phrased, like, to the people I've hurt is sort of, you know, once he, I think last July, he put out a statement apologizing for, quote, the ways I've mistreated people through my life and career. He's also been very open. He's has a long history of depression. He has uh, Meniere's disease, which causes some, like, balance issues mm-hmm. and s- seizure risk. A lot going on with the guy, and I don't want to downplay that. Like, there's, you know, I think it's great that he's been pretty upfront about having dealt with a lot of mental health struggles over the years. That's something and people... An addiction. Sure. Struggle. Mm-hmm. All right. So on to the New York Times. Joe Coscarelli and Melina Ryzik at the New York Times, for instance, reviewed 3,217 text messages
0: Whoa.
1: starting in 2013 with a young fan and bass player, like a young fan who was a bass player who it turns out was 14 when they began communicating online and 15 and 16 during the period where these texts were exchanged. The girl is identified only as Ava. She's, she was 20 when the article came out. Never met Ryan in person. Here's some of the Times reporting. In the texts, Adams questioned Ava repeatedly about her age, and sometimes she said she was older than she was. Though he did not seem convinced, their sexual conversations continued quote, I would get in trouble if someone knew we talked like this, Adams wrote to her in November 2014. Note that Ryan Adams was married to Mandy Moore.
0: I was about to say, yeah, I think he would be in trouble. November
1: 2014. The lawyer, Andrew Brettler, had this very lawyerly statement in response. Mr. Adams unequivocally denies that he ever engaged in inappropriate online sexual communications with someone he knew was underage. Here's another text. I never see pictures of you anymore, Adams wrote in November 2014, when he had just turned 40 and Ava was newly 16. No. You were blowing no, my no, mind. He oh, had pet shit. names for her body parts. No. Days later, Don't Adams... Don't make it weird. He makes it weird. God. Days later, Adams expressed anxiety. If people knew, they would say, I was like R. Kelly, LOL.
0: There, Those are two things that should never be used together, R. Kelly and LOL. <laughs> You made it weird. <laughs> you made it weird, dude. Yeah.
1: There's another. And, and tell me that your mom is not going to kill me if she finds out we even text. Right? Like, dude. Okay. Sadly, this is how the Ava part of the story concludes in the New York Times. But for Ava, the idea that she would be objectified or have to sleep with people to get ahead just totally put me off the whole idea of being a musician, she said. Mm. She never played another gig. And this is why sexual harassment is bad. Just chase women out of whole industries. Okay. Also in 2014, Ryan invited 20-year-old Phoebe Bridgers Mm. to his Pax Am studio one night where she played a song and he invited her to come back and record with him. This led to some flirty texts, again, married at this point, which launched a fast but brief romance between the two with Ryan talking about marriage within a week. Remember, he and Mandy Moore were married basically a year after they met. He moves fast. You will be surprised moves fast and makes it weird. Makes it makes mm-hmm. it weird. You will be surprised to learn that Phoebe says that Ryan quickly became obsessive and emotionally abusive, mm-hmm. demanding to know where she was, that she stopped what she was doing to join him for phone sex, and threatening suicide if she didn't respond to him right away. She bailed on the relationship soon after, but she had recorded songs with him. These were eventually released, but it took some time, uh, 2015, and it was on his label and I guess there was a lot of Ooh, Ryan Adams discovering these brilliant diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. In 2017, hey, congrats! He was no longer married at this point. Um, he invited Phoebe Bridgers to open for him ahead of her debut record's release. She gave this a lot of thought because she knew she knew him, but ultimately she agreed because like you can't pass up that opportunity to promote your.
0: Well, it's Polly Debut Platt. album. I'm doing your makeup on the set of this movie, but this is also a movie I'm making that's going to be responsible for my future success. Like, it is an impossible situation for women. It, yeah.
1: Yeah. So she ultimately agreed, you know, accepted the invite. And then, quote, the first day he asked me to bring him something in his hotel room, I came upstairs and he was completely nude.
0: No, no. Making yeah. it weird.
1: Adams denied this through mm-hmm. his lawyer. Similarly to Mandy Moore, though I think Phoebe Bridgers might hate that characterization, Phoebe talked to NME about her new album Punisher, The Times story, and the Ryan Adams ordeal. Writer Ella Kemp wrote this, Over the years, Bridgers has spoken of her tendency to over-apologize for herself and shrink to the size of the man telling her what she's worth. Mm. I definitely feel a lot less apologetic now, she says today. The Times says that two other singer-songwriters described a similar pattern with him, as well as singer-songwriter Courtney J. Mandy Moore herself, and the woman who is now Ryan's ex-fiancee who left him in 2018, are also quoted in this New York Times reporting. The story hints that these women were gradually reaching out to each other to share their stories and try to make sense of it, which I, it's such a fascinating... Social media is facilitating this, and it Really made me think of the Marilyn Manson story mm-hmm. you told the other week. It's a weird way to build a cohort. It really, really <laughs> is. It It is. Yeah. For his part, Ryan has not really reacted well to instances where Mandy Moore has talked about him in the press, taking to social media to try to shame her. So after the 2018 Glamour article where she said, I couldn't control what happened to my immediate family, but I could control starting my own. Not the smartest decision. I didn't choose the right person. He really did not appreciate that. Responding to a tweet posted by Perez Hilton that highlighted those comments, Adams quipped, She didn't like the Melvins or Blade Runner, doomed from the start. If only I could remember the start. LOL. The musician then remarked in a since deleted tweet that he was so high on painkillers that he didn't remember his wedding day. Quote When someone told me we got married, I thought they were joking. Then I realized how many painkillers I was taking. Honestly, there weren't enough to numb the shock. And then he wrote golly goops with too many O's. Okay. This incident caused his fans a lot of distress. People were really genuinely worried about like what was happening with him as this Twitter thread was happening. He would also say on Twitter, sometimes you get stuck to the spiritual equivalent of a soggy piece of cardboard. Nice guy. I am pleased to report that Mandy Moore jumpstarted her career just like right after divorcing him, landing her meaty role as the family matriarch Rebecca Pearson on NBC's This Is Us. She has received a Golden Globe nomination for that role. She's also been in several films in the last few years, and on March 6th, 2020, just before the world ended, she did put out that album. No tour, obviously, because of the pandemic, but... Sure, good on her. I assume she plans to. Yeah, The Silver Landings, it was favorably reviewed. She has remarried to musician Taylor Goldsmith, and it seems like this is... The, the right one their first baby was born just last month so happy birthday Aww,
0: congratulations
1: little guy I feel like this one is pretty diabolically trashy the story I'm gonna give it eight trash cans for the number of cats that Ryan and Mandy had <laughs> when they split up when Ryan promised to take two she wanted him to take four and in the end he took zero in spite of being a cat rescuer he is he is he has three now um anyway unlike the cats though These trash cans are non-transferable, and Mandy Moore gets eight happy halos. There you go. Probably for her menagerie of cats that she got (laughs) stuck with in the divorce. (laughs) That was a ride. It
0: was a ride. It was a ride. Thanks for that story. Yeah. And that's Trashy Divorces, making it weird for another week. I mean... Thanks, everybody, for tuning
1: in. That's a lot. But hey, if you haven't checked out Phoebe Bridger's Punisher, super good album. Super, good album, super you know? good album.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's it for me. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening. We have got another fresh set of Trash Candy episodes coming for you next Sunday. If you need more Trash Candy in the meantime, you can always find us at patreon.com slash divorces. We are continuing our Heiresses series this week. With Consuelo Vanderbilt. <laughs> Going to be a lot of fun. We got spider webs and tidbits as usual. Thanks, y'all. So much for tuning in. Until we talk to you next week. Wash your hands. Oh, so much hand washing. Double mask up. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and then just keep the heart trashy. As trashy
0: as you can. Clean hands, trashy heart. you <laughs> Bye. Bye.